Um, I'm Mike, one of the pastors here at Trinity Life Church. If you are a guest with us this morning, you received, well, you guys received this, but you got a blue and white connect card in your program. So if you would just fill that out, put your name, your email address, your phone number, and then just slip it in the offering bag as it goes by later. And please, like, put your best legible handwriting on that card. Um, there's, I get so many of these, and the email always bounces back, or I can't decipher the phone number. Uh, so if you have put one in before and you haven't received an email or a phone call from me or Daniel, it's because we couldn't read your email or we called the wrong number and left a message with who knows who. But maybe someone will show up to Trinity Life Church because we left a, <laughs> a voicemail on someone else's phone. So, yeah, just make sure it's legible. And then all we'll do is send you one email for lunch or coffee just to hear your story, answer any questions you have, and, um, yeah, share our story with you if you, if you want to hear that. So, welcome. Uh, we're in the middle of our sermon series called God's Story. Um, I said this last week, this, uh, this, and Adam alluded to it, this could actually be called your story, because all we're doing in this series is, show, is showing you how God's story is your story, how he's crafted a story for you, and that you're in this story. The Bible is, is a book that, is, that has what's called, and I said this last week too, it has a meta-narrative in it. So it has a grand, overarching story that that brings all 66 books in the Bible together. Um, but also the Bible says that it's the meta-narrative for life, for history, for everyone's life. It's a meta-narrative for mankind, for humankind. So uh, keep that in mind as we go through this series, that the Bible makes no, uh, has no qualms about saying, like, this is the story of life. Uh, so that's how we approach this book at Trinity Life Church, by, by saying that, yes, we believe this is a story of life. So if this is your first time in church this morning, uh, maybe first time ever, maybe first time in a long time, just know that about, about the church. We believe that this is that meta-narrative for life. And that's, that's kind of the context of this God story we're talking about here. The first two weeks, we did Genesis. Uh, we went through Genesis, and this week we're in the book called Exodus, this is a second book in the Bible where God is crafting a people, really. Exodus is all about God calling a people out and crafting them in order that they would be a light to the nations. So it's a really, really awesome book. And so far in this series, what we've done is we've talked mainly about uh, your personal story, your individual story, how that fits in, in something that's bigger, more wondrous, more marvelous in, in the God story. Uh, but today we're going to talk about how, uh, because this is the reality, your life, whether you're a Christian, you consider yourself a Christian or not, your life wasn't made to be lived in isolation. It was always meant to be lived in community. It was always meant to be lived corporately. It was always meant to be lived with people. And that's what we see happening in, in Exodus. And so what we're going to do, just to give you an overview of the sermon, I normally don't do this, but so that you see kind of the beauty of how I crafted this sermon. <laughs> we're going to start we're going to start corporately here and talk about this community that God is calling this people that God is God is making and then I'm going to bring it down individually and then we'll go back up corporately, okay? So if that's true, if if uh, we are to be a, a people that lives in community corporately, then it means that whether this is your first time at Trinity Life Church or you've been here since the beginning, that, this, that Trinity Life Church is now a part of your story. God has, God has allowed Trinity Life Church to be a part of your story somehow. Whether you live in Toronto or not, whether this is your first time in church or not, this is now part of something uh, in your life because you're here this morning. We're all here this morning. And if that's true, I want to give you a quick snapshot of of what the church is and what Trinity Life Church specifically is in our city. So I'm just going to roll through these things and, and, uh, and then we'll, we'll move on from there. So we're talking this morning about the king and kingdom mission, okay, the king and kingdom mission. God is calling a people in Exodus, it's called Exodus because this people is coming out of something and he's, he's, he's um, molding them to be something that they're not yet, but he's going to use them for something glorious. And 
And he's, he's calling them out, and he's crafting them for a kingdom mission, but it's all centered around who the king is. Trinity Life Church, uh, if you look at, look at these things here, where these, these posters are kind of uh, what we call our core values. So if you've hung around Trinity Life Church for any length of time, hopefully you've seen these things. Uh, we value movement. So we value a kingdom, a kingdom emphasis, not a church emphasis. Trinity Life Church is two years old. Uh, we celebrated that two weeks ago. And uh, we, didn't, we didn't start Trinity Life Church to start a worship service. You guys are in a worship service right now, but this wasn't why we started the church. This is a part of the church. So if your mentality of church is that this is church, that's actually not fully correct. Um, this is a part of what the church is, of what the church does, but we're a church that is involved in, in movement, in something much bigger than what, what we could accomplish as, as a small body of believers. Uh, we're a church that also values truth, uh, communicating truth, disseminating truth, living by truth, boldness. We want to make bold moves in the spirit. And so all these things really talk about a kingdom mentality, not a church mentality. And then transformation and, and community. Hopefully out of all these, you've seen these two, transformation and community. And community is, uh, you don't have true community unless you have genuine community and unless it's transparent community. Um, and if you were here for our second year anniversary, you saw that in a worship service actually, uh, which was amazing. Uh, so those are, the things, those are the things we value. We also say that we also want to live on mission in our city, and for those of you guys who aren't familiar with what that even means, like, we just want to benefit our city. We want to bless our city. We don't want to be a church that takes from our city. We want to be a church that gives to our city, that serves our city, that loves our city, that pushes our city forward, and that's part of our philosophy of, of just city engagement is, is seeing what the city is doing and pushing that forward, sharing the love of Jesus, infusing the gospel, and doing whatever we can to, to, lift, to lift those things up. And that, that comes off of just a simple principle, simple principle that, you know, for a long time the church has, has been viewed as a, a, a body that sends missionaries, but uh, a mentor of ours says, what if the church, what if we thought of the church as the missionary? And that's what we want to be in our city. We want to be a church that is the missionary. We're, we do these things in our city just because we, we love our city and want to push them forward. And then off of that, uh, this same guy also says, instead of asking, he says, instead of asking, how is my church, how about you ask, how is my city? He said, the, the first question is one of a pastor. The pastor's like, oh, how's my church doing? How, how, how's everything going? You know, are people coming? Are, you know, is everyone happy? He says the, the question of a missionary is, how is my city? And that, that totally changes who we are as a church. If Daniel and I are asking, how's our city, instead of how's our church, that changes how we operate, right? Um, that doesn't make us an inward organization. Although we love you guys, we want to we wanna help carry your burdens. Um, I love hearing all your problems and life issues. <laughs> I'm just kidding. Well, I mean... But I do. <laughs> we love to help you guys. But if that is always focused on mission and how's our city, that's totally different than just being a self-help, uh, a self-help organization. Now we're actually doing something bigger than than what what this is, right? So there's a guy who says his name is Christopher Wright. He wrote a book called The Mission of God, and he bases his whole book off of our God being a missionary God. That our God is. In essence, he, he came to do something with us. When we rejected him, when we fled, he actually sent his son Jesus as the missionary to pursue us. So he's been pursuing us all of, all of creation. He's been trying to, to bring us back to him. And so Christopher Wright says this. He says, the whole Bible, which talks about what I just said, the whole Bible renders to us a story of God's mission through God's people in their engagement with God's world for the sake of the whole of God's creation. That's a, that's a paradigm shift. 
If we view the church as, as a people in engagement with God's world, not for the sake of ourselves, but for the sake of the whole creation, that changes what our kingdom mission is and how we live on kingdom mission. It actually gives us kingdom mission. Kingdom, not church mission. You know, it gives us something much bigger than ourselves. So Exodus is the story. It continues the story of God making for himself a people to live on kingdom mission. And the people at the end of Genesis, so last week where we left off, the people had gone to Egypt, and so they'd left the promised land. They'd gone to Egypt, and there's only about 70 of them. And they went to Egypt because there's a famine, and God kind of orchestrated this thing that would bring the family of Israel there in order to uh, help them survive and flourish. So they become a nation of over a million people over 400 years. They go from a family of 70 to, to a nation of over a million and 400 years. That's crazy. Uh, but when Exodus, when Exodus comes in, that's where they are. The problem is they were living really nice. Now in Exodus, they're, they're not living so great. They're slaves. The Egyptians actually made them slaves, and they're doing all the, all the work of the Egyptians. And so let's keep that in mind as, as we move forward. Uh, at the beginning of Exodus, God, like I said, God has to craft this people. Like, they're slaves, they're oppressed, they're, um, they're just making bricks. I mean, they're building all these structures, and they're not, they're not actually living on a kingdom mission, even though God has given them this promise. Because so last week we talked about this promise that he gave them of, of the promised land, that they were actually going to be a blessing to the nations. So if you're reading through this story, this God story, you've heard that promise. That promise was in Genesis 12, and Genesis 15, and Genesis 17. We see that promise reiterated all the way through Genesis, and now you get to Exodus, and you're like, None of those promises are being fulfilled. I mean, they're in slavery. They're being oppressed. Like, that's, God's promises aren't actually happening. And, and then what happens is we see God's promises start to happen. So God calls out this man named Moses. And Exodus 33, what, what Kelly read, is God talking to Moses and let me just read a couple verses from here, and then we'll go back to the beginning of Exodus. Because I want you to see that kingdom mission is defined by two things. It's defined by the presence of the king, and it's defined by the character of the king. Okay? We don't have a kingdom mission if we don't have a king. And uh, Exodus is establishing who that king is. So uh, here in verse, verse 12, Moses says, to, to the Lord, you say to me, bring up this people, this is in verse 12, but you have not let me know whom you'll send with me. And then, and, then he, and then he says, you have said, you know me by name, or I know you by name, and you've also found favor in my sight. Now, therefore, if that's true, Moses says, then let me see something happen. And then God says to him, you have my favor. Favor is repeated all throughout uh, this passage, this short passage, favors repeated a handful of times. And then God says, my presence will go with you, in verse 14, and I will give you rest. And Moses says, if it doesn't, then I don't want it. If it doesn't go with us, if you don't go with us, God, then we don't want to go, okay? So let's, let's backtrack to the beginning of Exodus. God calls this man Moses out. Moses is a... Uh, He's Hebrew-born, he, and then the daughter of Pharaoh found him in a river and then raised him in the palace. So Pharaoh, uh, Moses is a Hebrew, but he's raised Egyptian, okay? So he's, he's like straddling both worlds. And God calls Moses, and, and this is, Moses isn't ready for it, Okay? And then God reveals to him in Exodus 3 who he is. And he says, this is who I am. And it's super personal. You read Exodus 33 and you're like, how does, how does Moses get this sort of relationship with God where he can, he can just talk to God back and forth? 
Last week we talked about how we talk to God, how we hear from God, hear, trust, obey. That's, that's what we talk about a lot at Trinity Life. Moses is doing that in this passage. He's trying to hear God and he's trusting him in order that he will obey him. Okay? It's all about hear, trust, obey. So back in Exodus 3, God says, this is who I am. And he says, I'm the Lord. And in our English versions, it's translated the Lord with uh, all caps. And that's God's personal name. It's Yahweh, if you've heard that name before. God says, my name is Yahweh, which means I am what I am, or I will be what I will be. And this is God's personal name. So whenever you see it in the Bible, the Lord, it's, this is God in his, in his relationship with us. And so this is, this is huge because this is the first time it's revealed in the story that God has been crafting. And, and now he reveals it to Moses, and he says, tell these people, these over a million people, that this is who sent you, that it was Yahweh, and I'm a personal God, that I've been with you this whole time. Now Moses is called, and Moses at the beginning, Exodus is really as much, it seems like anyways, is as much about Moses developing as a leader as much as it is God crafting a people sometimes. Moses has speech issues. When God first calls him, he's like, no, I can't talk in front of people. Uh, who knows? I don't know if he had some impediment or he was just nervous, but he says, no, I, that's, that's not me. So actually God says, well, here's your brother. Your brother will, will do the talking. And Aaron comes alongside him, and, and Aaron is kind of the mouthpiece for a while. And it's, it's, really, it's really peculiar because God says to Moses, you will be as God to Aaron because you will speak my words to, Mo, to Aaron and then Aaron will speak it for the people. And we see this development of, of Aaron doing that. So the first like six plagues, so what happens, Moses goes and he tries to free the people. God says, go tell them that Pharaoh needs to free my people and Pharaoh doesn't do it. So plagues start happening. Uh, flies, gnats, Nile turned to blood, locusts, hail, uh, darkness, all these plagues start happening. The first five or six, Moses doesn't do. Aaron actually does uh, with his staff. And Moses doesn't come in until the later, the later plagues. We see Moses develop. Uh, he has speech issues, like I said. He was, he was scared. He, he says, God, no, 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 that's, that's not me. He was... Uh, he thought he was, anyways, untalented. He didn't have the skill level. He didn't have the abilities. And what's even more interesting is Moses was a murderer. Moses was a sinner. Moses had just killed somebody. When you read the Bible, the, and, and why would the Bible say this about Israel's greatest prophet? <laughs> right? I mean, Israel's greatest prophet is Moses. And why... Why, you know, aside until Jesus comes, why would, why would they say this about him? But if you read Exodus, Exodus 1, 2, 3, Exodus 3 is where God calls, calls Moses. Exodus 2 is where, where Moses kills somebody. It's like, why, why would he say that? Well, it's because God knows him by name. You know, I don't know... Uh, what your state is this morning. I don't know what happened to you this week. Maybe it's you feeling insecure and unconfident and um, you don't feel like you have the talent. Maybe it's fear and other issues that are preventing you from doing what God's calling you to do, from listening and hearing God. Maybe it's sin. And Moses killed somebody. Moses was a murderer, but God knows you by name. He's a personal God. He's not some distant, transcendent being that made the world and then set it and let it go. This isn't deism. He's a personal God who's intimately involved. And he says, Moses, even though you have speech issues, even though you're scared, even though you don't want to do what I'm calling you to do, I know you by name, and I know you're better than you think you are. Even though you're a murderer, you're forgiven. There's grace. 
And he calls Moses out of that. And what's funny is he puts Aaron next to him at the beginning. Aaron's not any better. Aaron is, Aaron has a whole bunch of family issues. Aaron's sons uh, die later in, in the story um, because they blasphemed God. They did something wrong. Uh, they dishonored God. They, they blasphemed him before the people and they died because of it. Um, Aaron, later on in the story, uh, you see that for Aaron, the biggest thing was he feared men over God. He feared what others thought about him over what God was calling him to do. Because that, in the story, Moses, so the people end up coming out, and Moses goes on to Mount Sinai, and he's with God for 40 days and 40 nights. This is when he receives the Ten Commandments. This is where God uh, really communes with, with Moses for the people. And Aaron is down there with a horde of people, you know, over a million, who knows? Some, some people say two to three million people, which would, be, which would be a lot of people to walk through the desert. Um, and Aaron's down there, and everyone starts grumbling, and they say, hey, where's Moses? We think he's dead. Like, he's not coming back. So why don't, you, uh, why don't you show us who we need to worship now? And Aaron says, he doesn't say, oh, remember Yahweh, he did all these things. Like, he knows us by name. Like, he called us out. He actually says, uh, hey, give me all your gold earrings and your gold necklaces and all your gold jewelry, and I'll make a calf for us, and we'll worship this golden calf, and this will be our God, and we'll worship this as, as the Lord. And you see there that he's all, he only did that, and then Moses comes down <laughs> after, you know, 40 days and 40 nights, Moses comes down, and he sees it, and he just goes in a rage. He's, he gets angry, and he starts yelling at Aaron, and Aaron's like, hey, hey, you know, these people, they're complaining. I didn't have anything else. There's nothing else I could do. I, I got all the gold. I threw it in the fire, and out came this calf. And you see there just a huge fear of what other people think. And so what the person God puts next to Moses isn't any better than Moses. He's just as broken. He's just as lost. He's, he's still fumbling around. But God knows him by name. God knows you by name. You know, so whatever fear you have, whatever fear that's preventing you from hearing God clearly, and this is whether you're far from God or whether you're close to God, whether you're a Christian or you don't consider yourself a Christian, I talked about last week that God is speaking to you. If this is true, and we as a church believe this is true, then it means that God is speaking to us all the time, whether we hear him or not. And then, so God has Moses and Aaron, and he gives them a people that follows them out of Egypt into the wilderness, and they cross through the Red Sea, and the spectacular, there's a spectacular redemption and salvation. And in the very next chapter, Israel starts complaining. And they say, why didn't we die? Why don't you just let us die in Egypt? We have no food. We have no water. And then God gives them food and gives them water, like miraculously. And they're still complaining. They're still grumbling. And it's because they've been, they've been slaves for... 400 years. They have this slave mentality that's bred in them. Oppression, persecution. They're, they feel undeserving. They feel like they don't deserve this. They just deserve death instead. But God knows them by name. He's crafted them. He's called them. He's been He's been weaving their story all through Genesis for hundreds and hundreds of years for this very moment. And even though they have turned aside, they've rejected, he says, I know you by name. I've named you myself. He named them Israel. And he's calling them out to be a people that's going to be a light to the nations. And through this people that, is, that feels like they're undeserving, that feels oppressed, 
He says, you guys are going to be a light to the nations. And you guys are going to bring the gospel and the Messiah to the nations. Uh, last, or this past week, so I have two daughters, a four-year-old and a five-year-old, and uh, we read the Bible to them every night, or uh, a form of it. We read uh, a, a children's Bible, and it kind of, this, this one in particular gives them, uh, it, it tells, it summarizes a story, and then at the end of the story, it gives a little devotional. It's called, it's called Jesus Calling, and it's like Jesus is speaking to them, and it kind of says what Jesus would be saying to them through this passage. And we read them a story, and we pray with them. And so I was reading a story on the 12 spies to them, and this story is about Israel sending 12 spies into the promised land, and 10 come back, and they say, we can't do this. There's giants in the land. There's no way we can do this. We're so scared. Let's just stay in the wilderness. And only two come back and say, we can take this land because we trust in God. And in the Jesus calling portion, uh, it's all, it was all about trusting in Jesus and saying, I trust you, Jesus, when you're scared, when you know, things look bigger than you could accomplish on your own. And so afterwards, I, I said, hey, girls, let's practice saying that. Because recently, Reagan, our four-year-old, she's been scared of the dark, uh, which I don't know where, where that came from. Um, but she's been scared of the dark. And so, like, we'll wake up in the morning and she'll have her light on in her room. She'll have turned it on at, like, 2 a.m. or something and just fallen back asleep. And I've tried to logically explain to her, hey, sweetie, when you close your eyes, it's dark. <laughs> so you can't be scared of the dark. <laughs> but she's four. So um, uh, she's been scared of the dark. And then our daughter Emerson, she's five, uh, she went from a, a class in school of eight to 18. And she's like, she gets a little apprehensive around bigger groups. And uh, in this, a class of 18, she kind of like clams up. And so we've been encouraging her, you know, just to be herself and to, and to be, be confident in Christ. And so the story was perfect. So I said, hey, hey girls, let's, let's practice saying this. When you're scared of the dark, Rick, and you say, I trust you, Jesus. And Emerson, when you're, you're scared of large crowds or, or different things, like, just say, I trust you, Jesus. And... I took Emerson and Reagan to school the next day, and um, uh, get them ready to go in, and we're walking into the class, and right as we're walking in, Emerson looks back to me, and she says, Daddy, I trust Jesus. And then she walks in, and her teacher notices immediately. Her teacher's like, wow, Emerson, you're all smiles today. And she's like, yeah. <laughs> and she goes in and just goes and plays with all the other kids, and she doesn't even say bye to me. And I was so proud of her uh, that, she, that she said that. And, like, that's a kid's faith. You know, when, when the Bible says we come to Jesus through childlike faith, that's exactly, that's the epitome of what childlike faith is. She just trusted Jesus and knew that she was okay. And I told Missy this, and her, Missy's comment was, uh, it's so amazing we get to give them dependence on God from the very beginning. From the very beginning, we get to give them dependence on God. And, and I said, yeah, you know, we're actually, we're creating in them an independence you know, a lot of people look at, look at faith and, and religion as, as a crutch, but actually we're giving them independence more than we're giving them dependence because they're independent from the things that bothered Moses. They're independent from being scared to speak in front of large crowds or, or whatever it is Moses was scared of. They're independent of whatever issues they have, speech issues or, in, or anything else. They're independent of uh, their sin because they know that they're approved by the Father. They're independent of family issues like that Aaron had. You know, their, Aaron's family didn't define him. God did. And we get to give that to our daughters. You know, we, we could give that from the very beginning that we don't define. I don't teach Emerson and Reagan to say, I trust you, Daddy. I don't say, hey, girls, just trust me. It'll be okay. I say, trust Jesus. Trust God. It'll be okay. Because one of these days I'm going to fail them like all earthly fathers do. But Jesus is never going to fail them. God is never going to fail them. We get to give that to them, independent of a slave mentality that Israel had, independent of oppression, independent of 
anything that's happened to them, they're dependent on the one who never fails them, the one who is always there, who's always pursuing them, the one who's already approved them before they've done anything, anything. Jesus has already approved who they are because they're crafted in his image. And I looked at Missy, I was like, that's amazing. I mean, you know, Missy became a believer when she was 20. I became a believer when I was 11. Like, I already had 11 years of, of, of baggage. My family didn't, we didn't grow up Christians. Uh, my parents became believers when I was 10. And uh, so there's like 10, 11 years of dependence baggage. Missy had 20 years of dependence baggage on other things, on what other people think, on, uh, on you know, the sins that, that we committed, on our past failures, you know, on our own abilities. Maybe what you depend on is, you know, your own abilities, that you're a great this or a great that, that uh, you have the coolest hair, I don't know, that you look the best, that you're the most intelligent, um, like, those are all dependence issues that we carry that in Christ we don't have to carry anymore because in Christ those things don't matter. So we get to give that to our girls, and that's what God is doing in this passage. He's actually taking Moses and Aaron and Israel, and he's showing them how to be dependent on him and how to live a kingdom mission through hearing, trusting, and obeying and dependence on who God is And he's a personal God that knows you by name. But, like I said, kingdom mission is also defined by the character of the king. Like, we can't have kingdom mission if if we don't have have a king. At the end of this this passage in in chapter uh, chapter 33, verse 19, Moses makes a huge request of God. He says, please show me your glory. And God says to him, I'll make all my goodness pass before you, and I'll proclaim before you my name, the Lord, and I'll be gracious to whom I'll be gracious, and I'll show mercy on whom I'll show mercy. So grace and mercy are here, and this, is define, this defines the character of who God is, grace and mercy. Uh, I'm going to give you some simple definitions for grace and mercy, because uh, sometimes you know, those, those of us who, who weren't in the church growing up, now we hear grace and we're like, what, what does that actually mean? And this is a defining characteristic of what God does for us. Simple definitions, I was taught these uh, early on in my faith, that grace is, is simply getting something you don't deserve. So we don't, you don't deserve uh, me to give you a million dollars, but I give you a million dollars, something like that. So we don't deserve redemption and salvation, but God freely gives it to us. We don't have to work for it. He just freely offers it in, in Jesus Christ. And then mercy is, uh, is withholding something you do deserve. Okay, so think about this in the court system. Someone commits a crime. Uh, maybe you rob a bank, and, and you, go, you, go to, you go to court, and the judge says, you know, you deserve 20 years in prison, but in my mercy, you don't, you don't have to serve that. That happened to me one time. I was <laughs> not robbing a bank, but I was, so when I got my license, I don't think you should get a driver's license. I don't think people should get driver's licenses at 16 years old, but that'd be, if I was like prime minister, I would change that law. Because when I got my license, 16 was way too young. I was driving like crazy. I had all these speeding tickets and, and stuff. And uh, ended up getting this reckless driving, fleeing from the cops, speeding ticket thing. Kind of, it was like three in one. And uh, this was after, and this was after like three or four years of driving. So I was, it was bad. And what they should have done, what they could have done, was put me in prison, actually. Uh, I could have been jailed for that uh, because I had, had so many other offenses. Um, and what they could have done was revoked my license for a very long time. I'm a different driver now. Those of you who have ridden with me, Seth, no comment. <laughs> I see Seth's mind. He's like, no. Hey, uh, I'm still aggressive, but I'm safe. <laughs> um, 
So what they could have done was a lot, they could have made it a lot worse. What they ended up doing was, um, in the judge's mercy, they took my license for 30 days, and I did community service. And, which, I don't know, you can determine whether that's merciful or not. But it was. It was easy. It was easy community service. And I actually learned my lesson actually because of the judge's mercy. I learned my lesson. That was what, it wasn't because of the punishment. It was because of his mercy that I said, wow, this was, this was actually a big deal. Um, and I've been, I've been really good since then. <laughs> I have gotten one other ticket. Maybe two. But not since I've lived in Canada. So I have a clean driving record. Not in the past five years. Okay? So if you go to my driving record, it's clean right now. I look like a model driver right now. Somebody else in our household, it's different. <laughs> I'm just saying. She's like pointing at me. <laughs> um, so... God is, God is like this. That's what mercy is like. God extends mercy, and he extends grace at the same time. And the Christian faith is full of paradoxes like this. The Christian faith says, die to yourself, and you'll live. Lay your life down, and you'll actually find it. Like, those things kind of grate against our mentality just as humans. Like, die to, you want me to die, and then I'll live? Like, put my life aside, and I'll actually find true life. That's what the Bible says. The Bible also says, humble yourself, and God will exalt you. Like, that goes against what we think. You know, Jesus is the first, will, will be last, the last will be first. Um, but he says, humbling yourself will put you in a position for God to exalt you, for him to do a work through you. And God loves working like that. He says, when you are weak, it's then that I can operate and be strong in you. You know, we're always going to fail by doing things on our own power. But God in his grace and his mercy gives us uh, everything we need. And this is the character of the king. This is the type of people that God is crafting and calling. This isn't a perfect people, right? We just talked about that. So if you came into church this morning thinking everyone here is perfect, actually, actually hate that about the, the Western church, how you come in and everybody seems to be perfect and has everything together. Uh, we're not that way. I mean, I just shared with you my reckless driving. <laughs> we're, we're not perfect. We have, everyone here is struggling with something. That's genuine community, when we can struggle together and carry that burden together and lift each other up. And that's transparent community. And that's, that's, the, that's the people that God is calling together. He didn't can he call a perfect Israel? He called a broken Israel together to do something magnificent through. And they weren't the most talented. Actually, the Bible says that they were the fewest and the least of all people. And that's why he chose them. He didn't choose the Egyptians because they had big pyramids and they were great. He chose the slaves. He chose the fewest of all people. He chose the least of all people. Hopefully that gives you some encouragement this morning but when God was with them, people saw them differently. They were a light to the world. And like I said, our, our church is full of people struggling with things. But if Jesus is in you, he's transformed you. He's made you something different. The Bible says a new creation. He's, he's made you an ambassador for Christ. You represent Jesus Christ in this world. And that means that when other people see you, they see something else. Paul says in, in Ephesians that you are light. He doesn't say you're like light or you, you um, act like light or anything like that or you're becoming light. He says, no, if you're in Christ, that's what you are. You are light. And that when people see you live out your faith, they see light. They see something beautiful. They see a change. They see transformation. Uh, Missy and I met in university, and I'd been a believer for about 10 years or so, and uh, I met Missy and walked into a room very much like this, except it was stadium seating like the balcony, and there were probably about five people in the room, and I saw Missy, and uh, I walked past her at first, and I was like, eh, what the heck, 
And so I went and sat right next to her. Like, you know that feeling when you're in a movie theater that's empty and someone sits right next to you? And you're like, what are you doing? Like, there's a whole theater here. That's actually happened to me multiple times. I'm like, do I have a sign on me? Like, why are you sitting next to me? But anyways, or right in front of you. <laughs> and it's the tall guy with the hat. Um, but anyways, I sat right next to Missy, and we hit it off right away, went out that night, and then um, I found out we didn't share the same faith. Well, she had no faith. Um, she wasn't a Christian. And like, like most people come in here, they see Missy, and she's a pastor's wife, and they don't realize like, what her whole background is. Um, but uh, she wasn't a Christian, and we started talking, and uh, I'll, I'll cut out a lot of the story, a huge part of the story, but she ended up becoming a believer two months later. She professed Christ, and immediately her parents saw a change. Her family saw a change. Her family is uh, full of non-believers, and they immediately saw something change in her. Now, they thought, <laughs> they attributed that to me at first. Um, I mean, I don't blame them. <laughs> <laughs> The, but just because it happened so, so close together, they thought, oh, well, Mike came into her life and, you know, all these things. But what they saw in Missy wasn't just happiness. They saw, like, a deep joy that was placed in her that emanated out of her. They heard her speak differently. They saw her live with more confidence. They saw her um, put away some insecurities. They saw her put away her past. They saw a lot of things that could only be attributed to God and his work. Because a sinful, broken person like me can never do those things. It was only the Spirit of God working in her that, that does those things. And this church is full of people like that, full of people who have been taken from death to life. And your family notices that. If you're the only Christian in your family, your family notices that. Like, don't forget that. I know it's hard. I know it's discouraging sometimes. I know you, sometimes, you, sometimes I'm like, man, they're never going to understand. They're never going to see. Like, we gave up our lives. We moved to a new place. We left everything we knew, and we thought, man, that's going to help them see how important our faith is. And I'm like, man, if that doesn't, if that doesn't do, well, what's going to do it for them? How are they going to see it? Uh, but don't give up. Persevere in that. Your family notices. Your coworkers, they notice. You know, I, I actually talked to, I don't know if I've told you this, Adam. I met someone who knew you before you were a Christian uh, this summer. met someone this summer, and uh, they found out I was uh, at Trinity Life Church, and they're like, that sounds familiar. Like, do you know Adam Truax? I was like, unfortunately, no. <laughs> I was like, yeah, yeah, I know Adam. And, and uh, he was like blown away by how you were before you're a Christian to how you are now. Um, and that's, that's what the gospel does. It takes us from death to life. It gives us something we didn't have before. It transforms us. It gives us hope. It, it takes our problems and puts them in the context of a God story, not just in the context of, of our life story. Our life story is always going to fail us, but when you put your issues and your failures and your past and your problems and your future into the context of a God story, then we see your sin being redeemed. Then we see your failures being redeemed. Then we see your insecurities being redeemed for the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so the rest of Exodus is really God showing his glory to Moses and the people of Israel. You know, we just read Moses saying, God, show us your glory. Show me what your glory is. And the rest of Exodus, God starts to do that. Just in the next chapter, uh, Moses goes and he goes back on Mount Sinai. God gives him the Ten Commandments again. God gives him the Ten Commandments. And Moses comes down from the mountain. And this is something that a lot of people just read over. But Moses comes down from the mountain and his face is shining. It's brilliant. It's like his face is a light. It's shining like the sun. 
it's shining so much that when he comes down, people are afraid, the people of Israel are afraid to approach him because it's, it's that bright to him, to, to them. And it says that for the rest of his life, Moses had to wear a veil over his face so that he could actually talk to people so people wouldn't be freaked out by it. But he had been in the presence of God and they saw light because Moses had seen God's glory. You know, I was talking about my girls earlier. Um, I talk about my girls a lot. Uh, I probably can't use them for sermon illustrations for too much longer because <laughs> they'll, start to, they'll start to hear about it. But, um, you know, like I said, they don't, they don't ever sleep with nightlights on. They've never been afraid of the dark. Uh, but recently, Reagan's been turning the light on in her room uh, because she says she's scared of the dark. Uh, I don't know. I don't know where she gets that from. Uh, we haven't watched any scary movies or anything, but for some reason, she's been doing it. And so the light for her, when she turns it on, it brings her comfort, right? It brings her comfort, it brings her security, it brings her peace, it kind of envelops her, and then she feels like it's okay for her to go to sleep. So in her case, light, light's a good thing. Emerson, in her room, whenever I wake her up for school in the morning, her room is really dark in the morning. So even if I have the hallway light on when I open her door, she's like, too bright, too bright. She's like, turn the light off. It's too bright. And for her, the, the light is like, she kind of has an averse reaction to it because she's become accustomed to being in the dark. And Reagan, on the other hand, has just become accustomed to living in the light. So where she can even sleep in it. Like, Missy, she can't sleep unless it's completely dark. Like she, she can't have light on. Some of you guys are like that. You can't sleep if there's, if there's light. Um, but Reagan, so one hand, she loves it, brings her security. Emerson's like, no, no, turn that, turn that light off. And there's generally two reactions to light. Light, like I said, can bring comfort and peace, or it can bring uh, aversion. It can cause people to draw back, because light illuminates things, right? It illuminates, illuminates everything. And that's, that's what the church has been called to do. That's what kingdom mission is. We're called to be a light to our city. You're called to be a light to your neighborhoods. You're called to be a light to your workplace. As the church, we're called to be a light to this world. And sometimes it brings people comfort and security and hope. And sometimes people draw back from it because they say it's, it's, ah, it's too bright. They've become accustomed to living in the dark. They become blinded. That's what happens to animals when they live in the dark too long. These, these animals live in caves. They start to lose their sight. They become blind, and the, and the light's too bright. And God's people are living on mission in this world as the light of the world to bring the light to the world. And at Trinity Life Church, we don't veil this. We don't cover this. We want to be a people that calls people out of darkness into light. Because it's, the Bible says it's marvelous light. It's glorious light. Even though there's, there might be an averse reaction to it, it doesn't change the fact that light does bring comfort and peace and security and truth. And what's awesome is the book of Exodus ends with the glory of the Lord filling the camp of God's people so that they see the light from wherever they are. God's presence is, is signaled by a pillar of cloud uh, by day and a pillar of fire by night. And it says everybody in the camp sees it. And it goes with them everywhere. And the book of Exodus says the people of Israel, they didn't move unless that pillar moved. And it says that they only left when that pillar left. And so as a church, that's what we want to be. We want to be where that only goes, we want to be a people that only goes where that pillar of, of God's presence is going. We want to join God's work in our city. We only want to go where God goes. And we, we want to dwell where God dwells. And that's what the people of, of Israel are doing. That's kingdom mission. That's a mission that follows a king who extends grace and mercy through Jesus Christ. And he chooses a broken people, us, and he uses us to do it. And that's the amazing story of God crafting a people for his glory. Let's pray.
Father, thank you so much that um, that you use someone like me. You use someone who's a sinner, who fails you every day to communicate your truth. Ten years ago, I'd never see myself doing something like this. I was, I was Moses saying, no, that's, that's not me. That's not what I should be doing. That's not what, that can't be what you want for me. I was Moses saying, I have so much sin and baggage and I'm so broken. How could you, <clears throat> how could you ever, <clears throat> how could you ever use me? That was Moses saying, I've got all these issues and I'm scared. How could I ever be a mouthpiece for you? And God, in your grace and in your mercy that was extended to me through Jesus Christ, you've established my identity in you not as a pastor or a preacher or a good father or a good husband or someone who works hard or someone who's intelligent or uh, someone who uh, is, is, um, makes friends easily or anything like that. You've established me in Jesus Christ as someone who is approved by the Father before I did anything because you created me to be part of your story. So thank you. Thank you for that. And I pray that over everybody in here this morning, whether they don't know you, God, or whether they do know you, and you'd show them your glory, you'd show them who they are, what you've made them to be as part of the God story, the story that is over all of creation, over all of us. Open our eyes, open our hearts, and we would see your light We love you, Jesus. Pray all these things in your name. Amen.